We're going to read from 1 Samuel. And really, last week was a whirlwind journey, if you were here last Sunday. We went through 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 6. And we started with that declaration from Samuel in chapter 4, verse 1. And then throughout the next three chapters, we heard night. Nothing about Samuel, nothing about God. And in those three chapters, we see the army beaten twice. They didn't learn the first time. They went back and they got, well, truly thrice the second time. Over 34,000 people murdered, slashed out. The ark they brought into battle, it was captured. The Philistine god Dagon, they pushed the ark in front of him and he was killed. Down, head off. They didn't learn. Plague went through three-fifths of the Philistine territory. And finally they got the lesson. They sent back the ark to Israel. And God, leading two milking cows, brought it back into Levite country. And the cows ended up as sacrifices. And that's what we're following this week. That's where we are. First Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at... Verses 2 to 17. Page 277 if you're using the Bibles and the seats. It will not be up. I don't apologize, I'm sorry. But it will not be up on the screen. I want us to open up Word. Let us read God's Word as we see it marked in these verses. Starting the first two. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Jaram, a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you, and prepare your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And there fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb, And offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. And so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. And drove them back as far as Beth Car. 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shem and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Amen. And we know that the Lord will bless this reading from his holy word. Let's, let's commit ourselves to God. We're going to pray. And up on the screen are going to come three points. I'm going to pray them. And I want us just to take a time and look and see how they hit us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a privileged people. A privileged people who can gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come now, meeting in your presence, may your written word be our rule. We pray may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our chief concern. Amen. Privileged people. The written word is our guide, not ours. And we're taught by the Holy Spirit. I wonder if you have any ideas what the significance is of these images that are about to come up. Where's the real smart people? What's the significance? What's the link? Any ideas? Discussion is going on. Grey matter is being bounced around. Fingers, nothing for mine. Fingernails has been bitten. Anybody? No? 1859. Yes, it was not my birthday. May look that old. Mrs. Colville, the name in there, was the lady who God used to challenge the heart of James McQuilkin. The second name on that. And James and his three friends started to pray to God. The three, or the four of them came to faith in the town or little village of Kells, and they prayed for their land. The revival of 1859. We see up there the house 
or the old schoolhouse that they met in every Friday evening. We see up there the people gathered all over the countryside wherever they had the opportunity because there wasn't enough buildings for them to meet in. We see the customs house steps in Belfast where businessmen felt that need together. Men who only stood and did business well their business was to praise God and they stood with their arms around each other. They weren't Presbyterians, they wasn't a being out in public and they prayed for their city. The year of grace. I'm going to ask you to humour me. And right away some people are saying, wise up. I would like everyone to close their eyes just for a minute and make sure, please, make sure you're not touching the person beside you. This is a Presbyterian meeting house. Touching in the dark with their eyes closed is not allowed. So no touching, but eyes closed. And I want you to think carefully, please. And I want you to be prepared to raise your hand, even just to head level, if you believe that this country needs a revival. It's okay, I'm not counting hands. Okay, hands down. You can open your eyes. I want you to think seriously about the next three questions I'm going to ask you. Are you regularly praying for members of your family to be saved? Do you regularly share with people, or do you ever share with people their need for Christ? And the one that really hits all of us, I think, would you describe yourself as a repenting sinner crying out for God to use you in whatever way he chooses? Somebody once told me that in the Lord's Prayer, one of the hardest words to say is, Thy will be done. Because he always does it in a way that we don't want it. Think of those. I want you to close your eyes again. Please. I want you to think about your answers. And I want you to raise your hand if you feel that you are earnestly seeking God to move through this land. Okay, thank you. Hands down. You can open your eyes. There are some who are wondering about the eyes closed bit. And I can honestly say, I didn't look out. I kept my head down. Had to because I had to read what I was supposed to say next. The eyes were closed because I wanted no one to feel pressurised or embarrassed. And the hand up bit, no, we weren't going Pentecostal. It was just a simple gesture of us showing that we're prepared to stand to indicate where we stood with God. That's what it was all about. Friends, let's turn back to 1 Samuel. We're going to come back more to that. But 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 to 70. Uh, pages 2, 7, 7. 
be prepared, open them up. And first to be, as we read through this chapter, is the first thing I see. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I see lamenting people. And it's interesting how some words can have a number of different translations. You see, if I read that first, and yeah, I'm going to have a dig this week again at the newest version of the Northern Ireland version, sorry, the NIV. And if we read that, it states that the people of Israel turned back to God. And yet the 1984 version, the version that you have there, says, and the people of God mourned and sought after. I'm reading from the New King James. Or if I read from a Hebrew Bible, no, I'm not reading in Hebrew, I'm reading in English from the Hebrew Bible. It uses the word lamented, and the people lamented. You see, after everything we saw concerning the the ark and everything we discussed last week, we now discover the people of Israel mourning. They're lamenting. They're seeking. There is nothing here to suggest that during the 20 years, verse 2 tells us, a long time, it was their 20 years. There's nothing to suggest that during those 20 years that the Jewish people had restored any of their festivals, any of their sacrifices. Nothing. There's nothing to suggest that they had built a tabernacle in Kirjath Jerim. That they had set up a holy of holies because that's where they would place the ark. That was the necessity if they were going to hold the festival that meant the most. Come Kippur, and I've pronounced that wrong. The day of atonement. The day that the high priest makes sacrifices on the ark for the sins of the nation. The day that the high priest comes and the whole nation seeks God's forgiveness. There's nothing to suggest that happened during those 20 years. This was a nation that regretted its past. A nation that felt God had withdrawn from them because of their refusal to recognize and to honor him and how they lived. This was a nation that was hurting. And I believe, yes, I accept that they had been just going through the motions of worship. They accepted that. And they were truly ignoring who God was. And that's why they're lamenting. That's why they're mourning. That's why they're seeking. Friends, we've got to fully understand the emotions of these people. They weren't emotional people. They weren't Presbyterians. I'm sorry. They showed their emotions. Okay, maybe they did belong to Orangefield. No, they didn't. Because they danced in their worship. And they went into real heartbreaking lamenting. It hurt. And yet, rather than having turned back to God, they were going through this agonizing spiritual wrestling. 
as they sought ways for God to be brought back into their national life. They were embarrassed. And there's many of us are there. We look back and we're in that period of wrestling. It's not a bad place to be. So long as we don't turn away from that. In all the stories of the 1859 revival that I've read, I discover that James, Jerry, Robert and John were actually church-going young men. (laughs) They were. And yet it wasn't until they were openly challenged. First of all, James was openly challenged that it wasn't about doctrine. It was about faith. And then each of them And they spent that time individually, they spent that time honestly and agonizingly wrestling about their real spiritual condition. And then they surrendered and they committed their lives to Jesus. Friends, before we move, let me ask you, let me challenge you. How is your heart? Let me get personal. Who owns your heart? Seriously. Because not only do I see there are lamenting people, I see there are repentant people. You see, after 20 years of stewing, some people would say, 20 years of agonizingly struggling Samuel comes and he challenges the Israelites to be active. To be active in their desire to follow God. Remember the first that came up at the very, very start. Chapter 4, verse 1. That was the last time that the word of Samuel had come to all of Israel. It was well over 20 years earlier. And they ignored him. They ignored God. They went to war. And Samuel knew that they were remorseful about their sins. He knew that they had actually been mourning for those past 20 years. And yet he knew that there's no real change in their hearts during those 20 years. They had no real repentance. They were hurting, but they hadn't fully repented. There was no U-turn in their spiritual life. They still worshipped the Canaanite gods of Baal, the god of agriculture, of Ashtoreth, the goddess of love and sex. They were still up there. They were the Amorite gods or the Canaanite gods. And so even though they felt sorry for what they had done to bring God's wrath upon them, they were still worshipping these pagans, these idols. You see, their hearts were divided between God and the idols, between God and the material things of the world. Verse 3, we see that Samuel challenges them. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He says, make real changes. Heart changes. I don't want window dressing cosmetic changes. He says, let's get rid of those idols and repent. 
He says you need to commit yourselves fully to the Lord. You need to serve him and serve him only. And if and when they put their lamenting into action and make these heart changes, he says God will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. And how did they respond? Verse 4, we see that their repentance was real. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and served the Lord only. They put away the images, the idols. They probably smashed them down, put them out into the road for tramping down. They turned their attention to the word of God. They turned and they started learning to meditate and obey it. And they were beginning to serve and worship the true living God. Big heart changes are going on here. Big heart changes happened that day. Because if we look, the next time a battle is mentioned in Scripture is 200 years later. 1 Kings 16.31, we see a king Ahab. 200 years without any idol worship. God worship only. I'm sure the difference was seen throughout the countryside. Back in 1857, not in 59, in 57, when James McQuilkin gave his heart fully over to Jesus, we're told that the news quickly spread around the countryside that this man who was once known for his love of society and the world's business was now in love with Christ and his word. James and his three friends, as I said about the old schoolhouse, had a burning desire to read and to learn God's word. Friends, we live in an idol-worshipping culture. And many people worship the modern-day Baals and Ashtoreths. Materialism, self-interest. And you see, the pressure is on for us to fit in. The pressure is on to have the most technology-advanced gadget we can get our hands on. We've got to have a watch or something around our wrist that tells us exactly what is going on inside our bodies. Or that connects with our phones, with our iPads. Yeah, I'm into it as well. Well, I bet. And no matter what the cost is, we've got to have that gadget. And the spin that we get is that things will help us to go smoother. It will ease the pressure. It will bring or maybe assist us with health benefits. And yet I look around and I see cars getting bigger, flashier. I see one problem with them. The bigger and flashier the car, the better the chance that it doesn't have any indicators. They don't put indicators in the new cars, so they're both so big they don't need them. 
And of course, everyone must know it's yours. I see people starting to want to know what's going to come next. The personal rage. I wonder, let me ask. I don't want to see hands now. But who gets, who really gets the praise from having a personal rage? Who's it all about? It's my car, Luke. It's got my name on it. Really? Sorry. No, I'm not. You see, it's easy for our hearts to be divided between God and the material things of this world. So easy. And I wonder, can you hear Samuel speaking? He's saying, if you claim to be a disciple of the Lord, then it is time to get rid of these idols. Yeah, your car's an idol. Your number plate's an idol. Get rid of it, commit yourselves fully to him, and serve him only. But verse 5 tells us that it didn't end there with a call to repent and change. Samuel says, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. He's calling, he's organizing a national prayer meeting. Imagine that. And it isn't a prayer meeting for all the priests. It isn't a prayer meeting for all the Levites. It's not for all the tribal leaders. All of Israel is invited. Everybody. This is the largest repentance revival permitting possible. Let me ask you, when, when did you last hear of a prayer retreat for every member to attend? When was the last time an invite went out saying, within Orange Field, we're going to have, and everybody we expect to be there? Oh, okay, sorry, let's not get personal. Everybody within the Presbyterian Church of Ireland has got to be there. Let me ask you, if it came, will you go? I'm sorry, I have something on that day. Sorry, we haven't even given you a date yet, and yet you've told us you can't make it. But that was the invite that went out. And Ms. Powell, we all will say, the Lord watched between me and thee while we're absent one from the other. Yeah, but whenever it was first said, you had Lathan and you had Jacob, I think that was the two, and he was saying, okay, we're going and we're supposed to be keeping in contact. Well, hey, let the Lord watch between us. It's a warning. It wasn't endearment, it was a warning. And that's where Samuel brought us back to. It's a place of men look out, watchtower. It's located up in the mountainous areas north of Jerusalem. It's a place that isn't easy for people to get to. It's rugged mountain climbing. It's a place that requires real heart change commitment to get there. It's not just a donder up a road. And that's where they met. Verse 6, so they gathered together in Mizpah. They, the nation of Israel. And this was an important gathering. It was there that they consecrated themselves as God's people or reconsecrated themselves as God's people. 
It was there that by fasting, by pouring out of water, that they sincerely, with a true repentant heart, confessed their sins. It was there that they recognized at last that Samuel was God's servant, that Samuel was God's man to be their judge and their leader. And you notice that when the threatened came from, or the threat came from the Philistines, they showed that they had changed by not getting ready for war, but by going to Samuel and they said, will you make sacrifices to God on our behalf? Verses 10 to 14. We see that God answered their prayers. Friends, as I look back to the story of Kells, I see that sincere, repentant prayer had a very important part to play, not only in the build-up over the two years to the moving of the Holy Spirit in 1959, but it had an important part in the extent of the change that took place. Right across Ulster, right across Ireland, we discover over 100,000 new converts in the first six months. We see the Holy Spirit moving throughout not just Ireland, but throughout Britain. We see the raising up of many evangelists and missionaries and missionary societies, some of which are still around. And the purpose was to spread the gospel. Friends, as we have seen, we have a God that answers prayer whenever it comes with a sincere, contrite, repentant heart. Let me ask, how many of us actually looked up at the verse on the screen? How many that looked up just read it with no other thought? Or how many of us read it and said, I agree with what it says? But more importantly, how many of us accepted that it applied to me, to you, to us? If God's people, that's what we claim to be. Ouch. Turn from our wicked ways. We're God's people. Yeah. You see, we can respond in many different ways. But if we're honest, humbling is not something we do well. It means making ourselves vulnerable. It, it means surrendering. That's a bad word. We're good Protestant Presbyterians. We don't like to use that word surrender. And that's what it means. You see, the people of Israel had to humble themselves and they had to surrender and they had to learn how to know his word and obey it. And when they did look at the fact that it had... We jump into the New Testament and we see Peter and the disciples learning how to humble themselves. Three years with Christ. Learning how to 
be vulnerable for, so that on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit can move through them and use them. You see, I think it's important that we understand that Jesus didn't save us so that we can sit looking spiritually pretty. Oh, sorry. I'm not allowed to actually claim that some people just like to look spiritually pretty. But we were saved that through study and prayer we would be spiritually active. We'd be growing deeper in our relationship with him. You see, he didn't save us to be bogged down in maintenance. But he saved us to be active in mission. And I wonder, are we? Are we so engrossed in the maintenance we haven't got time or energy for the mission? Friends, as we prepare to finish, remembering that we have a gracious loving God, remembering that we have a sacrificial redeemer, I want us to think back to the questions I asked at the start. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up. But if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you a repentant sinner crying out for God to use you whichever way he chooses. Because it means Second Chronicles 7.14. If you claim, if I claim, if we claim to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, let me ask, are we earnestly seeking God to move through the church? To move through this land? Are we honestly seeking God to rescue souls? It's what we should be doing. And it not only means Second Chronicles 7.14, but it also means Acts 2, 46 and 47. Friends, if you're as the children of Israel was during those 20 years, mourning and lamenting about the society you live in, mourning and lamenting about the state of your relationship with God, well, he wants you to turn your lamenting into repenting. He wants you to accept his son as your savior. And feel free to speak to me afterwards. Just as we come ready to close, let us remember those questions. Let us remember that passage which I drew your attention to, which is back up on the screen. And let's just take time to quietly seek God. We're going to take a few moments of silent personal prayer. I want us to pray for the congregation in St. Field Road Presbyterian. Just a long wee bit and up a wee bit. Their meeting house was attacked twice this weekend. Pray for the congregations that you know of 
that is under threat because the Word of God's been preached. And pray for your own heart. Let's just take that. Let's, let's be silent. Let's pray. Father, we're in the middle of a battle, a spiritual battle. And we see that being worked out in many ways. We see attacks on buildings, as was the case with Shenfield Road. We see attacks on individuals, verbal and mental. Lord, we pray that you will continue to surround us and protect us. Lord, you know the state of our hearts. And we come as your people. Lord, we fall on our knees and we cry out to you. We accept the times whenever we've done it our way. And we haven't brought you into the equation. And we're sorry. We accept the times we have done things that embarrass us. But you will forgive us. Lord, we don't deserve forgiveness. We cry out to you to change our hearts. Not to make a cosmetic change, but give us a real heart change. And use us, whatever it way it means, Lord, that you're using us. Use us for the advancement of your kingdom. Move through this land. Move through this city. Lord, move through this area and rescue the souls that are heading for a lost eternity. Please, Lord. Lord,